Well, good morning, everybody. Um, hope you're all kind of still fit and uh, well after going on the bouncy castles and everything yesterday. Great fun, wasn't it? We're going to be carrying on this morning um, on our journey through the book of Acts as we look at the emergence of the, uh, the early church and uh, um, how they were following Jesus' instructions and uh, how they were kind of wrestling with some of the, the challenges of being Christ-like in, uh, in the world. And I've entitled uh, this morning, uh, Anything to Declare, which uh, hopefully will become relevant later on. But just as a bit of a, a recap of where we've got to so far in this journey, here's a uh, quick clip. Hopefully that should be playing. No? Can you just click the mouse on there? That ought to play... No, go back to the... If it doesn't work, then no problem. Go previous, Pete. There should be an embedded video in there that should be playing. No, it's not? All right, leave it then. Very interesting. Never mind. So all it was, really, was just a a, a bit of a a clip... um, a voiceover that took you through the journey so far in Acts, how um, Jesus had uh, ascended back into heaven. Um, he left his disciples with the very clear instructions. The disciples um, were, were left kind of wondering, kind of, so what, what happens now? Um, they met together in that room. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and they were empowered um, by God's Holy Spirit to go out and, and uh, preach the good news. And we saw how when they were faithful to preaching that good news, many thousands of people uh, believed and were um, brought into, uh, into the early church. But well, we're going to pick up the story now um, in, uh, in Acts, the end of Acts chapter 4, and, the, and let's work our way through chapter 5. Now, of course, remember in the, uh, in the original text, there were no chapter breaks. They've been added uh, later on, so uh, it's important for continuity of, of this, that we uh, we finish uh, the last verse or so of chapter 4. So Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, 
Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they'd been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent them to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with all the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with all your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, 
and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the truths that are contained within it. I thank you for the challenges that there are in it. And Lord, I just pray now that uh, through the anointing of your Holy Spirit, you would open up these words, that we might understand what you have to say to us through them. Lord, would you open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, would we be honest with you, honest before you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that some of you are avid Facebook users, and I know that some of you hate it. And uh, I'm not for a minute suggesting that Facebook is a bad thing, although it can be used for bad things. Um, But I find it kind of quite amusing and bemusing at times, the things people choose to put on there. And I was having a little bit of a a trawl around people's Facebook uh, profiles, um, uh, trying to discover some of the things that people were saying about themselves. And don't worry, I have asked people's permissions. It's interesting, I found out that uh, Mr. Will Johnston, uh, amongst his uh, likes, has explicitly stated that he likes Manchester City Women's Football Club. No mention of the men's football club. And I just wondered whether Alison knew about this uh, delight that he has in watching women's football. Gabby Instone, I understand, very bizarre post on Facebook, she discovered in her kitchen bread with a sell-by date of the 5th of March this year. Why she would choose to tell somebody that, I do not know. Um, but uh, did, she did throw it out. Yes, good. I, I was wondering whether it was part of the sandwiches yesterday or not. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I found a lot of other stuff that actually probably best not to share with you. But, you know, sometimes when people um, post things on, on sites like this, it's not quite how they appear. Sometimes people end up putting false fake personas on there. For example, Tom Bolton, who's not here this morning, but apparently he's the owner of Harry Potter's studio tour. (laughs) I have to have a word about that. Hope business is going well. 
And I, and I did discover that Hannah Orman is my Lydia's sister. How can that be? <laughs> Big claim to fame. And Chloe Rainbow, although she has changed her profile, used to be manager of One Direction. She has changed her profile, and I, I guess the, uh, the breakup of the, or the split up of the band probably didn't do that well for her. But, it, but it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that often we set ourselves up to be something that we're not. Whether that's kind of embellishing our CVs a little bit when we're applying for jobs, whether it's a, a, a bit of friendly banter with our um, friends and colleagues that just exaggerate our experiences a little bit for effect or whether it's actually that we put a mask on to really pretend that we are somebody that we're not. To try and make things look good, that makes it look as if we're coping, when actually, deep inside, we're a bit of a mess. And at the start of this passage, in uh, Acts chapter 5, we see the account of two people who were pretending to be something that they weren't. Ananias and Sapphira sold some property and brought part of the proceeds to the apostles. Now, on the face of it, that's a fantastic thing to do. It's what the others were doing. Here was uh, Joseph, uh, also called Barnabas. He'd sold a plot of land and uh, brought the proceeds to help out the work of the church. A fantastic and noble thing to do. And as we see later on in our story in Acts, Barnabas became quite an influential person in the early church, a son of encouragement, somebody who um, really kind of helped um, you know, bring the church together. And I'm not sure what Ananias and Sapphira's motives were, but maybe they were thinking, hey, this guy's, uh, you know, got a lot of plaudits for doing what, uh, what he's done. We should be doing the same thing. Now, the interesting thing is they, they didn't have to sell their property. There was no instruction that said, right, we really need some money. Everybody go out and sell something that you've got and bring the proceeds. They didn't have to do that at all. The property was theirs. Nor, as we see uh, Peter saying, did they have to bring the whole of the property to the apostles. It was theirs. They could do with as they chose. But they didn't. They chose to put a false impression that they were sacrificially giving the entire proceeds from the sale of this land. And as a result, as we saw from the reading, they paid the ultimate price for that. They died. I just wondered whether now might be an appropriate time to take the offering, actually. <laughs> but seriously, now this, this is a tough passage, actually. And, and I want to lay down a couple of ground rules before, before I go any further. The first one is, I honestly believe that this is not about money nothing to do with money. So don't worry if uh, actually you haven't emptied your wallets this morning. Second thing I want to make absolutely clear is that when people stand at the front and try and expound God's word, often they're speaking as much to themselves. 
So please don't take this as a personal criticism and John standing at the front and saying, you know, there's a, there's a problem in the way that the church uh, operates sometimes, right? I believe that people who are given, the, I guess, the honor and the, and the duty of preaching God's word have to do that faithfully. So it's God's word that's being spoken here. Right? And I would challenge you to, to kind of test that, test what's, what's being said to see if it is right. But with that in mind, I want to kind of um, have a look at what's kind of going, really going on here. Going back to chapter 4, and as we uh, kind of learned a little bit about um, from Victoria when she uh, spoke to us last week, that the church was actually in a really good place, wasn't it? Here were the uh, here was the church, the, uh, the apostles, they were meeting together, they were praying together, they were teaching, there were thousands of people joining them. We could clearly see evidence of the fruits of the Spirit, we could clearly see evidence of the gifts of the Spirit being outpoured, people were being healed. It was a really great time, wasn't it? A real, almost an example of the perfect church. <laughs> Would you not love to be a part of a church like that, that was described in uh, Acts chapter 4. And I wonder, as we continue our search for a new pastor here, if there's one thing you could change about this church, LBC, to become more like that perfect church of the New Testament, what do you think it would be? Have a quick 15-second chat with your neighbor. If you could change one thing about LBC... What would it be? (laughs) Any thoughts? Anybody willing to shout out what they think we should change? LBC. Anybody brave enough? Yes, Karen. Perfect answer. Brilliant. You see, we can look at all the things on an outward um, point of view that we think would be really great if we could just have all this going on in the church. But the church is you and I. And it's been said by many people, including Spurgeon, that there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if you find one, don't join it because you'll spoil it, those kind of things. Yeah. But the thing that is wrong, ultimately, with any church, is us. Yeah. And so we find it with the early church here. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was not the fact that you know, they needed to bring money to help the work of the church. It was that their own personal motives were wrong. It was them that was wrong. So why did God choose to judge them ever so severely? In fact, was it God that chose to judge them ever so severely? I just want to have a quick look at the whole topic of God's judgment. We touched on this uh, a few weeks back when we were looking at what is our reaction, what happens 
when things go wrong. And uh, um, I had some really interesting discussions with people uh, after that um, uh, service where they were saying, well, it's really helpful to understand that actually kind of God's in control of these things and that, you know, sometimes he... Sometimes he lets these things happen, but why? What, it's, it's the eternal question. Is it, why does God allow suffering? And we looked at examples of uh, you know, earthquakes and all the kind of disasters we see uh, around the world. And we were trying to kind of wrestle with how can we understand the context of Romans 8 where it says, you know, all things work to the good of those that love the Lord. How can that be? And again, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. When we see disasters like earthquakes in Nepal and uh, plane crashes and so on, I would say that most of the time, that's not God's direct judgment. We read elsewhere in Romans 8 that as a result of sin... The whole of creation is groaning. It's kind of creaking at the seams. It's just desperate for Jesus to come back and, uh, and kind of rescue it, restore it, renew it. So most of the time when things go wrong, it's not a direct judgment of God per se, although it is as a direct result of sin. But sometimes, and I think this is an example of it, God chooses to say, enough's enough. And he chooses to directly intervene. Now, some people might say, well, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, maybe Ananias just had a heart attack, you know, the shock of being found out, and and it was just kind of natural causes. But I don't think that was the case at all. First of all, the Holy Spirit gave Peter a direct word, a word of knowledge, that Ananias had not given all the proceeds of the sale. So clearly God had something directly to say through this. Secondly, Peter predicted Sapphira's death as well. So it was not only a word of knowledge, it was a word of prophecy about what would happen. So yes, I believe this was... God's direct judgment on the the lying of Ananias and Sapphira. Goodness. When did you last tell a lie? Quite sobering, isn't it, actually? So why would God choose to intervene in this instance and not in all other instances where we've perhaps not been entirely uh, fulsome and honest with the truth. Well, I think God wanted to make it very clear where, or the implications of his holiness and what that meant for the way the church needed to behave. He needed to set an example before the rot set in. Here was a church that was doing what Jesus had commanded, and yet here was a first sign that perhaps the rock could set in. And and 
Look at the words that Peter chose. He said, why has Satan so filled your heart? Peter recognized that this was a direct attack by Satan to try and infiltrate the church and destroy the thing that uh, the Holy Spirit was building. So God had to draw a line under it. And I honestly believe that there are several occasions when God chooses to directly intervene to make it clear just how holy he is and how he will not uh, tolerate the flaunting of his laws. Now, of course, we know that there will be one day when we're all going to be accountable for the things we do. So whether judgment occurs in this life or the next, God is a holy God and he will not be mocked. Now, the thing with sin is that often it's kind of quite private, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it was uh, Tim was saying yesterday that uh, if we knew certain things about him, we wouldn't have invited him to speak. And yet, if he knew things about us that we keep secret, he wouldn't have come. <laughs> and I think that's so true, isn't it? But who are we kidding? You know, Ananias and Sapphira were trying to cover this thing up, but God knew. Who were they fooling? I think that uh, often the problem is, actually, the real sin in our mind is the sin of being found out, isn't it? Now, um, I received a nice little letter from Warwickshire Police um, a couple of months ago. And uh, it said that I had been uh, photographed doing 71 miles an hour on the uh, M42 motorway. As it happens, they claimed that it was a 60 mile an hour uh, variable speed limit, so uh, although I never saw it. But fair cop, how can you argue? And I felt really annoyed at that. I'd had a clean driving license for over 15 years. And, uh, and even though I got away with a, uh, um, a driver safety course, um, you know, it was still annoying to have been caught, wasn't it? And I just thought to myself, why was I so annoyed at that one occasion when actually, I guess, fair to say, almost on a daily basis, in some way or other, I creep over that speed limit? Yeah? And it's interesting, isn't it, that we think that when we've kind of got away with it, it's all right. The real sin is being caught out. But God says, no, I'm holy. And the real sin is it's disobeying me, is being dishonest, is being hypocritical in your lives. And what I really think is going on here is not just lying, but it's the hypocrisy of a lifestyle that would set yourself up to be something that it's uh, that you're not. I think I've told you this story before, but when I was just a wee lad, I discovered the joys of, uh, of catapults, and I made myself uh, out of a little uh, Y-shaped branch and a, an old uh, bike tire inner tube, this wonderful catapult, what power it had. Stupidly, I set up a target on the front of the house, not far from the bay window of the lounge. <laughs> 
And I thought I was a good enough shot to hit that target, but unfortunately the stone went a bit astray and went straight through the lounge window. My father stormed out. What have you done, John? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Haven't done anything. What happened? I I don't know. Eventually, obviously, (laughs) red-handed. And my dad said to me, he said, do you know what? The thing that hurt me the most was not that you broke the window, but you lied. And uh, the thing that hurts God most (laughs) is not ironically our sin because he's paid the price through Jesus. It's done. It's paid. It's that unwillingness to accept that we need his forgiveness. That's what really hurts God. When we say, do you know what, God, we don't need you. I'm good enough on my own. I've got myself sorted. When we pretend you know, God wants us to be found out. He wants us to come to him in honesty and say, God, I need you. I need a savior. So, hypocrisy in the church. Possibly one of the biggest dangers, I think, to the church today putting on a face, pretending, having that air of religiosity and uh, saintliness, but actually inside, not uh, having that at all. Jesus had an awful lot to say about hypocrisy. It was probably one of the big, his biggest uh, kind of commentaries on, uh, on life in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Let's just uh, have a look at what he says. Matthew 23:27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Matthew 6 says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. And then perhaps most sobering, particularly today as we're going to share communion together later, we see Paul writing in 1 Corinthians Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Wait for this. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, i.e. died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. In the early church, hypocrisy, putting on a false front, was a real problem. And it had to be dealt with. It had to be uh, called out. 
So what do you think our attitude should be? Well, I think it's very clear. Looking at Romans 12, we're told, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So Ananias and Sapphira were setting themselves up to be more important than actually they were, to try and make the impression that they were holier than now, they were giving it all away. They certainly weren't doing that, uh, what that instruction in Romans said. So there was hypocrisy inside the church, it needed to be dealt with, and God dealt with it in the way that we saw. But also, there was hypocrisy going on outside of the church. We saw the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the whole kind of gathering of the Sanhedrin. They were really jealous of what was going on. They were saying, do you know what? This is our job. We should be bringing the people together. We should be the ones that are standing up and saying we are kind of uh, God's, uh, God's body, God's representatives. And yet here's these uh, bunch of startups, uh, these fishermen, these, uh, you know, who ought to know nothing. And all these people are following them and they're doing great things. And they were really jealous of that. And you know, instead of saying, actually, we want a bit of that, what is it about what they're saying that's true? They tried to stop it. They tried to bring a halt to it by arresting um, the apostles, locking them up, and trying to forbid them from uh, 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 preaching the good news. Rather than addressing their failings, they tried to cover it up and bring an end to it. I wonder how often we do that when things aren't quite going the way we'd like them to go. How often do we try and cover it up and find other ways around it? God says, no, be honest with me. Don't be hypocrites. You're not lying to me. I know it all. You're only lying to yourselves. But it's interesting, isn't it? The apostles must have thought, oh, well, here we go again, getting locked up and... uh, (laughs) You know, what's going to happen now? They trusted absolutely in God, and God was totally faithful, wasn't he, in sending that angel to uh, let them out of prison, even locking the door behind them to leave it all nice and tidy. And um, You know, they uh, uh, are given the chance to, to go out and uh, yet again do the work that uh, um, they were called to do. And remember, the instruction from the angel was what? To go out and proclaim the full message of Christ. The most important thing. And in looking at what was kind of the real focus of the apostles' uh, uh, ministry, I was having a think about the the whole passage in in James, about faith and works, and, and clearly the early church was full of this outworking of... Um, you know, the good news, where we see people's lives transformed. We see good things being done for people. We see um, 
and a sacrificial giving by most people. Uh, we see healings and so on. You know, the works were very much in evidence. Evidence. But what does the angel say? He doesn't say, go out and carry on doing the good things you were doing. He says, go out and give the full message. And whilst I absolutely wholeheartedly think that, uh, you know, the whole faith without works uh, is is dead thing is absolutely, um, you know, what God wants us to, uh, to live by, you've got to turn it on its head as well that works without faith is dead. And I think that, you know, some of what Ananias and Sapphira were getting up to was they were trying to support the work of the church without the full understanding of why they were doing it. Because if they did, they'd have been completely honest about what they'd given. And for them, the work of the Lord had almost become more important than the Lord of the work. And as a church, we have to get that balance right. It is so easy, isn't it, to get sucked into a kind of social gospel where it's all about what can we do, what can we do, how can we help people. But the angel instructs the apostles not to just go out and do good things. He says, give the full message. And then, by the way, the good things will follow. Yeah? So I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to separate the two, but it's the, what is the starting point? What is the motivation for doing good things? And I'm, I'm sure it won't surprise you, but probably one of the biggest criticisms of the church in general is that they're full of a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah? If you ask people, that's what they say. You know, you Christians are just hypocrites, aren't you? Do you know why? Because you go out and do good things, but actually, in your own lives, you don't reflect the holiness of God. You say you're doing it because of this, but actually you're not living that through in your lives. Despite God's warning about hypocrisy to the early church, it's probably one of the biggest dangers of the church now, not living through, not being open and honest. We have to stop listening to what the world is saying they want the church to be, this kind of uh, um, do-gooders. And we have to start listening to what the word of God says we need to be. And first and foremost, that is to be holy because I am holy, says God. Make the Lord of the work just that little bit more important than the work of the Lord which follows from recognizing who the Lord of the work is. So what was this full and important message that the apostles were given? The angel doesn't say, and this is the full message, but as we follow on through the passage, we see the response that Peter and the apostles make in answering that challenge, that call from the angel. Because the minute they get the chance to appear before the, um, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the rest of the Sanhedrin, 
it's clear the message they feel they need to bring. So let's have a look at it. Acts uh, 5, beginning verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. That was their interpretation of the full message. So what's in there? First of all, that Jesus died. Secondly, that Jesus was raised by Almighty God. Thirdly, that Jesus is exalted by God as Saviour and Prince of Heaven. Fourthly, that Jesus is able to forgive our sins. And then fifthly, the Holy Spirit is provided to be our our comforter, our enabler. That's it. (laughs) That's the full message of the Gospel. We need to repent. We have a Saviour that God's provided for us. That Saviour is Jesus who died and rose again. All other things hang off that. But that's the, the kind of key important thing. And it's interesting, isn't it, that you know, probably the, the person who had the least chance to go through Alpha courses, discipleship courses, and all kinds of stuff was the thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus. He didn't have the opportunity to learn all the rest of the kind of follow-on stuff, but he got that full message. He recognized that who Jesus was, that he was God's son. He saw Jesus dying. He believed that Jesus would be raised again and would be exalted to a kingdom in, in heaven. And he asked for that forgiveness that he might be remembered by Jesus. You know, if we just get back to those basics and understand that without Jesus, we're nothing. That if we try and pretend and build our lives on other things, we're missing this important full message of the gospel. You know, the kind of people we are, the things we do, it kind of counts for nothing, really, unless unless we understand who Jesus is. So we can put on that pretense, we can be hypocrites, we can look for fulfillment elsewhere, but do you know what? We'll fail. (laughs) Because without Jesus at the center, we're not walking in the way that God wants us to be. So here we see the apostles faithfully obeying the instruction that was given to them. (coughs) Faithfully obeying what Jesus said and what the angel reiterated. And what happened? First of all, people were terrified in the church. (laughs) Right? And yet, true believers continued to join. The fear that is talked about of those uh, you know, not wanting to join were those that saw, as a result of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, just how holy God was. And they felt, if I'm not doing this properly, I don't want to be a part of this. <laughs> but those that genuinely understood 
and were be prepared to put their trust in Jesus, they joined that almost perfect church in those early New Testament days. So I wonder as we prepare to share in this wonderful remembrance of communion, are we being honest before God? Are we denying him access to certain areas of our lives? Do we put up a mask? Do we put on a a pretense? Do we have anything to declare? God knows it all already. So, uh, you know, it's not as if uh, we're going to shock him. It's not as if he's going to say, whew, now you've done that, that's a bit, uh, bit much. don't think I can quite cope with that. He knows it all. Jesus has paid the price for it all. I wonder as we come and share in communion whether there's things that we're putting ahead of God. Whether we're saying, God, you can have that much, but no more. Are we pretending to others that we are something that we're not? as that passage from 1 Corinthians urges to do, let's examine ourselves before God to make sure that there's no wrong ways in us. There's nothing that's keeping us from sharing that wonderful relationship with Jesus. Nothing that's stopping us moving on with him, growing in the church that he's called us to be. We're all part of that church. So let's use this opportunity. I'm going to ask uh, Ian and the, the band to, uh, to come up um, and continue to lead us. And we're going to sing Purify My Heart. But let's um, just bow our heads in prayer for a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, there are no secrets with you. Lord, you saw us when we were knit together in our mother's wombs. You know the deepest, darkest corners of our lives. Lord, I pray that right now you would, through your Holy Spirit, shine into those corners. Lord, you'd speak to us. You would challenge us. Lord, you'd bring us to that place where we recognize your holiness. Lord, I pray that we would be holy because you are holy. Help us, Lord, to to put off those things that are stopping, those blockages. Help us to be honest before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.